Uh, We try our best to be a Bible teaching church. And if you would actually read the Bible cover to cover, you would find out that in the Old Testament and the New, our perfect father in heaven was not shy and he was not sheepish about the topic of sex. The prophets weren't, the apostles weren't, the father wasn't, the spirit wasn't, Jesus in his own ministry wasn't. And so we feel it's important just to be honest, to be candid, and to be biblical. Uh, In fact, in the sermon series, as we study these letters that Jesus wrote in Revelation 2 and 3, did you know that there is one topic that comes up in the first letter and the third letter and the fourth letter? The only topic repeated by Jesus that many times and the topic is? Yeah, you guessed it. (laughs) The truth is, though, even if Jesus didn't talk about it that much, Uh, As a pastor of this church, I would still feel compelled to talk about it often. Because the longer the years go by and the more I get to know you, um, the more you communicate with me there online or on TV and you send in your letters from your homes, from your prison cell, I I realize that sex is something as awkward as it can be that intersects with all of our lives. I recently read from author Peggy Orenstein that the average American teenager is exposed to 14,000 sexualized messages a year. 14,000. And yet, in her very same research, she did in-depth interviews with 70 young women and asked them, uh, among the many questions, how many of you ever had a real conversation about sex with your own father? Out of the 70 young women who are absorbing 14,000 messages about sex each year, how many out of 70 ever talked with their own dad? Two. (laughs) In her research, uh, Ornstein also found that at that time, 92% of the top songs on the Billboard charts mentioned or were focused on sex. This is before a 2020 survey came out that said one in six Young adults in America between the ages of 18 and 24 now identifies as LGBTQ. And, um, just in case you didn't know, pornography is still a thing. Uh, It's out there. And I don't have to tell most of you, it's not just out there. It's in here. As a praise-singing, Bible-reading, Jesus-adoring church family, you and I talk about this behind closed doors a lot, don't we? Um, You're struggling with pornography and you you don't know how to escape it and you need help. Um, You're questioning your sexual identity, orientation, you need guidance and shepherding, you want to know what God really wants you to do and you send me the email. Your marriage is struggling Maybe it's gotten to the, the point of an affair. Or maybe you can just see it drifting in that direction. And you want to do things God's way. So we're going to be in Revelation chapter 2. It says, To the angel of the church in Pergamum write, These are the words of him who has the sharp, double-edged sword. I know where you live, where Satan has his throne. Yet you remain true to my name. You did not renounce your faith in me, not 
not even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was put to death in your city, where Satan lives. Uh, some early church tradition says that Antipas would not bow the knee and worship the gods of Rome. So as a consequence, they boiled him alive in a bronze kettle. Can you imagine? And yet the pastor of the church saw it, and yet he did not let go of Jesus. You catch those words? He says, I know where you live, and yet you remain true to my name. You did not renounce your faith in me, not even in the days of Antipas. Like, this pastor might be next. He might be threatened. He might be tortured. He might be boiled alive. He might be crucified. He might be thrown to the beast, and yet he refused to compromise his faith. Write this down. Here's the good thing that Jesus has to say to this pastor and his church. The good was the pastor's personal courage. You could threaten him. You could accuse him. You could drag him to court. He wasn't letting go of Jesus. He was personally courageous. I kind of think of it like this, uh, this giant Lego. Let's imagine this giant red Lego is Jesus, which is why I wrote Jesus on it. Right. <laughs> this pastor, he, he thought of Jesus in such a big and beautiful and glorious way that he was going to hold on to Jesus no matter what anyone said or did. Like a slap on the wrist, he, he's not going to let go of Jesus. A lash across the back, he's not letting go of Jesus. You, you could tie him to a stake, set him on fire, just tell him all he has to do is drop Jesus. He's not letting go of Jesus. What, what he had found in the Son of God was so beautiful and glorious that nothing in this life was worth letting him go. Like when I was a total mess, there was Jesus. When I went through my divorce and was just off the rails morally, there was Jesus. When I wandered and strayed from church, from the Bible, from prayer, from my values, there was Jesus. And that is my prayer, that you pay so much attention to the words of this book, to the lyrics of these songs, to the prayers that we pray, that in the end, you don't just leave with the melodies in your head, you leave with this kind of Jesus in your heart. That was the good. But it wasn't all good for the pastor at Pergamum. Jesus continues, Nevertheless, I have a few things against you. There are some among you who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to entice the Israelites to sin so that they ate food sacrificed to idols and committed sexual immorality. Likewise, you also have those who hold to the teachings of the Nicolaitans. Repent, therefore. Otherwise, I will soon come to you and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. Now, did you catch what made Jesus so mad? It's fascinating. It, it wasn't what the pastor did, and it wasn't what the pastor believed. 
It's what the pastor permitted. What Jesus says in these words is so anti-American. You might have missed it when I said it. He said, Pastor, I hold this against you. That there are some people among you who hold to the teaching of those people. If you've always thought that your personal beliefs are none of the pastor's business, you don't agree with Jesus. If you think church is about giving an offering and then the pastor can give you counseling when you need it, but otherwise you're going to do you, you don't agree with Jesus. Apparently, Jesus says that I am not just supposed to get a, a salary and a little bit of authority here, but I have a deep responsibility to make sure that you hold to the teaching of Jesus. You catch that? He's, he said it twice. Some people among you hold to the teaching of Balaam. Some of you hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans and pastor, that ain't okay with me, Jesus says. So, what is he talking about? It's a little bit deep, super contextual. So if you're new to church, the Bible, you've got to turn up your brain power for about three minutes, okay? With me? Balaam was a guy who lived about 1,500 years before Jesus wrote this letter. You can read all about him early in the Bible in the book of Numbers. He, he was essentially a prophet for hire that you could pay and Balaam would come and he would either bless you or he would curse them. And that's exactly what an ancient king named Balak wanted to happen. In the days of Moses, the people of Israel were marching towards Balak and his kingdom and he freaked. He needed these people to be cursed before they took over his land. So Balak pays Balaam and has him come to curse the people of Israel, but Balaam won't. He says that, that God won't let him pronounce this curse. In fact, he just blesses Moses and the people of Israel. Then he does it again. Then he does it a third time. Then he does it a, a fourth time and he's, he's not going to get paid and he's about to leave until he leans over to Balak and he says, sex. And in Numbers 24, Balaam takes off back to his hometown and Balak knows the perfect way to get to Moses' people. Sex. They seduce the Israelites. They invite them to worship their fertility gods. They sacrifice animals. They have a big feast. And then they throw off the rails and the boundaries and the Ten Commandments and they indulge in the sins of the flesh. And apparently in Pergamum, the same thing was happening. People were breaking the commandments. They weren't doing what the God of Israel had said. The pastor knew about it, but he smiled and he prayed for the people and he didn't say a word. And the Nicolaitans were, were much the same. As best as scholars can suggest, there seemed to be this guy named Nicholas in the first century who gathered enough of a following that they called his people the Nicolaitans. And Nicholas said that you could have your sex and have your Savior too. Like if, if Jesus forgives, then he'll forgive it, right? 
And if his love is unconditional, then you don't have to worry about any of that, right? And if he saves us from everything, then you're saved, right? So yeah, you're, you're fine. You're going to heaven. You got Jesus, so just do whatever. He'll take care of it. And there were some people who didn't just struggle with that. In the text, it says they held to that teaching. That's what they believed too. And the pastor preached, and he prayed, and he permitted, and Jesus judged him. Write this down. The the bad that Jesus saw in the church of Pergamum is what I'll call relational cowardice. The pastor himself had personal courage, but not when it came to the church. All right, so what do you think Jesus would say to me or to the pastoral staff at our church? What would he say about us today? Would he repeat the same praise and the same critique? Are we better? Are we worse? Let's dig into that for a few minutes together. Uh, let me start with just the, the basic definition of biblical sexual morality. I'd love for you to, to fill in this blank for me. Sex in the Bible, let me condense all the, the teaching on it. Sex is essentially this, God's gift to husband and wife. I don't have a hundred passages to prove it, but I could. Sex is God's gift to husband and wife, and I mean every single word of that. Sex is God's gift. If you don't think sex is an inherently good thing, if you're like sheepish and awkward and embarrassed, (laughs) you ain't biblical. The very beginning of sex happens before sin was even a thing. Before there was sin in Genesis 3, there was sex in Genesis 1 and 2. Adam and his wife Eve were naked, the Bible says, and they were unashamed. The Bible talks frequently about the joy of sex and the pleasure of sex. I dare you to read Proverbs 5 after church is done in the car and see if the kids in the back don't giggle just a little bit. (laughs) There's a celebration of our bodies, the creator who made them, the one who designed nerve endings and and pleasure and the ecstasy that sex can be when it is done well. The, The very start of the definition of the Bible is not a don't or you shall not. It's a good father who wraps up this incredible wedding gift and gives it to every husband and every wife. It's God's gift. And it's a gift for just two. It's not God's gift to a husband and his wives, polygamy. It's not a gift to husbands and wives in polyamory. It's not a gift to, to a man or a woman and their digital partners through pornography. It's meant to be the two becoming one flesh. And it's husband, not not boyfriend, not friend with benefits, not we're engaged and God already knows our hearts. God said it's only after a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife that the two become one flesh. And as you may have seen, it's not a husband and his partner or significant other, it's husband and his wife. One man, one woman, 
in the covenant called marriage, that's good sex according to God. Um, I was a virgin until my wedding night. Kind of. Uh, Many of you know that a long, long struggle with pornography was part of my story, even though I was a a church-going, dinner table praying, ministry studying kind of kid. It's it's hard to wait. And honestly, if it wasn't for Kim's self-control and her spiritual strength, her good boundaries, I I probably couldn't say that I would have made it to the finish line. I, I get it. And most of our church family does too. And for a whole bunch of reasons, this is one of the hardest things in the Bible to obey. Like, I come to church every Sunday. I give an offering. I get up five minutes early. But to be self-controlled, to embrace everything that this is, is so, so difficult. For some of you, the difficult part of this teaching is believing that it's God's gift Maybe you grew up in one of those homes where your parents were cowards. They were so scared about the talk that they left you defenseless and ignorant in a world where Satan was so ready to peddle his lies and half-truths about your body. Or maybe you grew up in one of those churches where sex was talked about, but just don't, 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 wait, wait. Don't wait, don't wait, don't wait. And then you got married. And to enjoy it, to, to communicate about it, to talk about desires and, and pl- like, there's, there's no space for that in your brain because you were never given that kind of model. To see it as a, a gift. You might be married right now and you might be the higher desire partner or the lower desire partner to see, like, this is, this is God's idea. This is a good thing. It takes work. It takes practice. But just like we want to grow in faith, in communication, in our love for each other. We also want to grow in our sexual intimacy. For some of you, that's very, very, very hard. There are countless sexless marriages within the Christian church, and it breaks the heart of the creator who created our bodies. It's hard. For some of you, what's hard is is the waiting. Right? You're, You're dating you're into him. He's into you. You want him. He wants you. Like you're ready. You're committed. This isn't some you know, dangerous fling. Like it, it is hard to trust God and say, no, nope, not yet, not yet, not yet. To believe that God knows what He's doing when He says, no, only after the covenant has been made, I'll give you the gift, but not until then. No shortcuts. No asterisks. No excuses. No exceptions. That's hard. If you have some conception of God that he is high and holy and keeping his hands clean from the messiness of our sexual lives, that is not the God of the Bible. Jesus threw himself into a kind of world where he was known as the friend of sinners, drunkards, and yes, prostitutes. He saved those who have been caught up in adultery and the gospel was preached in the Greek and Roman world where everyone was off the rails when it came to the self-control of their own body. We have a Savior who forgives you. So brothers and sisters, if, if you struggle with God's definition of sex, know this. Jesus is here. 
He is here as you struggle, as you try to make the best decision one day at a time, as you resist temptation and repent when you fall into it. He is right here. And if that's you, you are not the person that Jesus is speaking to in this text. I just gave you a very, very long tangent if some of you were paying attention. (laughs) Because I know what the topic of sex does in the human heart. But now I need to speak very briefly to those of you who don't struggle with God's definition. You hold to something besides God's definition. Like, here's Jesus and all of his love and all of his truth. Are there any of you here today who have let go of Jesus to hold on to something else? To a belief that sex is not God's gift? That marriage is not required? That you should follow the desires of your heart no matter what the book says? Are there any of you here today who are ashamed to say out there what what Jesus says in here? Ashamed to say it to your friends, your kids, your culture, yourself? If that's you, I am begging you today, repent. If Jesus comes back and he finds you not struggling but smiling while you're sinning, he will go to war against you. On the last day, if you stand before Jesus and call him ignorant, if you claim that his definition of right and wrong is wrong, it will not go well with you. Out of his mouth will come a sharpened, double-edged sword and his truth will cut you to the soul and you will not make it. I'm begging you today, if you are living a sexually immoral lifestyle, if you are holding to it instead of struggling against it before it is too late, repent. 80 years of love in this life is nothing compared to forever. So repent. And that's why Jesus leaves us with these words today. He says in verse 17, whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who is victorious, I will give some of the hidden manna. I will also give that person a white stone with a new name written on it, known only to the one who receives it. Whoever has ears to hear, let them hear. Let's pray. Uh, Dear Jesus, uh, you know. (laughs) Uh, You know where we've been. You know what we've done. You know the things that we haven't done but, but should have. Thank you for your unconditional love. Jesus, you spoke some hard words today, but the only reason you spoke them was to save us from something harder. Thank you for the love, even within your discipline and your rebuke. God, I know in our culture, the devil has convinced us that sexuality is everything. That to not indulge a desire would be to give up our very selves, but that's not true because you are our life. 
you are our everything. You are the one thing that is needful. And so I pray right now, Jesus, that you would give your Holy Spirit, that we would believe that, that you are worth it, that you are worthy, that there is no one, there, there's nothing in this life that can bless us like you have blessed us with your forgiveness, with your patience, and with the free gift of eternal life. Um, God, I, I pray for me, for all of our pastors right now, for courage. Um, it's easier just to know something and let it pass. To not say something and just assume it will fix itself. Give us courage. Help us to be faithful to you, not ashamed of you. Help us not to fear the reaction of people, but instead to live in the fear of God, the fear of you. And finally, Heavenly Father, I, I pray that you would not let a single repentant person leave today with shame. I know right here in this space are people who have been unfaithful, people who have been adulterous, people who have prostituted their bodies, people who have been trafficked. There are people who struggle with sexual purity, people who struggle with patience. Jesus, when you went to the cross, you died for all of it, for the things that we've done and the things that have been done to us. And so may we leave today truly believing the words that we are soon about to hear, that your face is shining upon us, that you are looking on us with grace. And may that thought rid us of all shame and instead give us peace. I pray all this, God, because you love us, because you're listening to us, and because you long to help us. So we pray all these things today in Jesus' name. And God's people said, Amen. Do you find Jesus really interesting but kind of confusing? Maybe today you sense that God is working on your heart and giving you a new excitement about the things of the Christian faith, but you're not quite sure what to do next. If so, you're exactly the kind of person that I wrote this brand new book for called The Basics. Uh, it's not AP Bible, and it's not going to answer every question you have about Christianity, but it's going to get you back to the basics of why Jesus is worth following today and for the rest of your life. If you're interested, just go to timeofgrace.org to download your free copy. People all around the world are hungry for a good life. A life that you and I know can only be found in the good news of Jesus Christ. That's why it's such an honor and a privilege as Christians to share this good news with all the nations around the world. But have you ever thought of this? The good news only sounds good if you can understand it. God is love or Jesus forgives you is amazing news if you speak English. <laughs> but if you don't, then it's just words that you don't quite get. This is why I'm so excited about a brand new challenge grant. Some amazing friends of Time of Grace have offered a $140,000 challenge grant, meaning that your gift is going to go twice as far to reach twice as many people with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Here's just one example of what we're doing here at Time of Grace. We're currently working with a Brazilian missionary living in Croatia who's translating the gospel that we share at Time of Grace into Brazilian Portuguese so that people who don't speak English can celebrate the same good news that we do. Remember his mission? Preach the good news to all creation. One day we're going to gather around the throne of Jesus with people from all over who speak all different languages and yet we share this one faith that Jesus is King and he gives us life to the full. To thank you for your financial gift towards our $140,000 challenge grant, Pastor Mike would like to send you a book he co-wrote with his pastoral colleagues called Letters from Jesus. In this new book, you'll discover how the letters from Jesus to the early church 
found in the early chapters of the book of Revelation still speak clearly to your life today. Request yours when you give to our $140,000 challenge grant by calling 800-661-3311, visit timeofgrace.org, write us at P.O. Box 301, Milwaukee, Wisconsin, 53201. Time of Grace doesn't end here. Visit timeofgrace.org and explore encouraging resources or sign up for our daily email and have everything delivered right to your inbox. Like our Grace Moments devotions, Grace Talks devotional videos, blog, and podcasts. Follow us on social media where you'll find a supportive Christian community. If you need prayer, give us a call and let us know what's on your heart. Thank you so much for your support. See you next week on Time of Grace.